This sermon is the first of a two-part, just really short series as we talk about Jesus coming to preach in his hometown of Nazareth. This sermon was originally recorded January 31st, 2016 at Castle Rock Middle School. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We're going to be talking about uh, hometowns today. So how many of you have anyone famous from their hometown? We talked about it before, the famous people from Castle Rock. We only have a couple. Well, besides you. Uh, yeah, we only have a few. One is Amy Adams, probably our most famous person. She was in Enchanted and then later on in some other movies. How do you know she sings? And I won't sing it this time. And then we also have a guy who helped write uh, Janie's Got a Gun for Aerosmith. I don't know if you knew that. So he was in Aerosmith, I think. Now, I didn't. This was part of my research when I did my historical uh, pedal tour. And that's one of the. I was looking for famous people, and that's kind of where it dried up a little bit. But um, I was just in Norfolk, Nebraska. And does anyone know the most famous person from Norfolk, Nebraska? Yeah anyone, yeah, anyone who can leave. No, that's not true. They, no, Johnny, Johnny Carson, Norfolk's a great place to go once per lifetime. Uh, it's kind of like riding in a small car. You're like, man, I love my car. So the um, Norfolk, Nebraska, were there, Johnny Carson, they have a whole way named after Johnny Carson. You can go there. There's a museum named after him. And my own town's got some famous people. Appleton, Wisconsin, where I grew up. Uh, Edna Ferber, if you're into books. So she's from there. She wrote some books that are pretty famous and also uh, elementary school where my mother worked, and then uh, William Defoe, he's the creepy guy who plays the Green Goblin, always looks like he's sick. Um, I'm not super pumped about that one, I shouldn't even mention William Defoe, but then our most famous person that we're excited about is Harry Houdini. Is, he grew up in Appleton, Wisconsin. He was born Eric Weiss in Germany and then made his way over. They've got a museum now in a whole square named after him, and then there's there's uh, plates along that talk about his exploits as a, as a growing up, and one of those things that are really cool as he went down all the streets, and I, I might have even shared this with you before, he went down all the streets one night and opened up all the businesses, so he picked all the locks. So I, I don't know if he was everyone's favorite, everyone's favorite illusionist at the time, but so you have all these hometown things, and there's something really interesting, I think, with hometown heroes, is once they make it, usually you're pretty excited about it, right? Like once they make it and they're famous, it's really cool, but there's always this kind of transition period, I think, like when you're Imagine going to school with someone who says, like, I'm going to be uh, in movies. I don't know if Amy Adams did this, but imagine she's telling all her friends, yeah, I'm going to be a movie star. Would you want to hang out with someone who would be telling you that kind of stuff? Not so much, right? I mean, I can't, there's this drive to be something bigger. So I went to Milwaukee in the studio where I was working at, I just said that that brief filming stuff, but they represent a guy named Corey Piper, C. Pipes, if you guys know him. So C. Pipes was there, and I'm talking to him, he's a younger kid in his 20s. I'd never heard of him. But, I, so, I, his music isn't inappropriate, and it's like hip-hop kind of music, so I thought, hey, well, lift some weights or something, I'll listen to some C-pipes. And there's this kind of underlining thing in his music. One is that people love him, so that's one, people are jumping on his bandwagon. The other one is that there's a lot of haters. And I thought that's really interesting. He had a number of songs that kind of had this theme, all these people like him, and then the other one that says people don't like him. But you can imagine what they would like. Um, if you're in high school and this kid is saying, hey, I'm going to be big one day, and he's like doing rhymes in the hallway. Everyone knows a kid like this who's just weird, who had no chance to make it big, right? So how do you know when you jump on the bandwagon to see if this person can really do it? So there's this transition period between once they're big, it's fine. What do you think it would have been like for Jesus to go to his hometown? Like, I wonder, is is there like a transition period of all the people who knew him? He would have been about 30 at this point. So he grows up, and Luke doesn't tell us, and we hardly know anything about Jesus growing up. So he, we have the story of Luke 1, 2, and then we're already just in chapter 4, and he's 30 years old. And so in the meantime, 
Uh, the most famous of his miracles, obviously, has happened. That's the wedding at Cana. And he's tempted in the desert. And uh, we assume other miracles are happening. And he makes his way back to his home region. And he's preaching in the synagogues, which was, it says, his custom. So he would go to the synagogues on a Saturday, and he would, he would talk, or maybe on a Saturday, maybe during the week, because people would gather there, and he would start to preach. Well, now the big day comes, he's going to his hometown. That's a whole different story, isn't it? I mean, just imagine now um, the Sea Pipes goes big, and he's doing the Milwaukee tour, which is not quite as dramatic to say I'm from Compton versus Milwaukee. But, I mean, so he's making the Milwaukee tour, and now he's got to go back to his hometown. You never quite know how that reception's going to go. Most of you probably don't know what it's like to go preach for your home church for the first time. Anyone? I could, that's the experience I had. So I grew up in a small church. It was a big church, 1,500. I, this sounds, there's two different churches, I should be very clear. One was 1,600 people. Then we transferred to a church that had 40 people. And my family of seven like, added significantly to the numbers. So I went there, and when I would go back to my home church, um, they were really excited. It's, it's only by the grace of God that anything actually happened and people heard the message of Jesus because they're mostly like, I can't believe that guy's up there, right? So they listen to it, and mostly this is the two things you have to know when you preach at your hometown. If, um, if they don't make eye contact, that means you're not doing very well. So that means they're really nervous for you. Have you ever had that? Someone's reading in front of a group, and uh, you get nervous for them, so you don't want to make eye contact. Everyone's making sure they make eye contact now. No one's nervous for me. That's good. And it, the other thing is when they get done, no one ever says like, hey, that was a powerful message. I could still preach that sermon if you wanted. I preached it like 25 times. Um, no one says that. They just say, good job. So I wonder if that's like, the, like that for Jesus. Like he, he's now coming back to his hometown and everyone's wondering like, how is this going to go? Here's the hometown boy, Mary and Joseph's son. And how is he going to do when he's finally in front of the synagogue? So we should talk a little bit about how the synagogues work if you're familiar. Um, where are you supposed to worship if you're an Old Testament believer? Remember, it goes from, they would just build altars out of like rocks for a while, and then they went to the tabernacle, that tent, and then they built the temple. So they finally built a temple, and that's where they worshiped. That was the primary place. They weren't allowed to like just worship anywhere they wanted at that point. They had to go back to the temple for worship, and then the temple gets destroyed, and they're sent back. So during that time, they said, we got to figure out something. We can't offer sacrifices anymore, so we got to come up with some kind of solution. The solution they came up with is what we still know today as a synagogue. So this is kind of how it works in the synagogue world. The synagogue, um, if it follows the Mishnah, which is kind of this Hebrew writing, this is how it would go. You would go on a Saturday, and there would be a series of readings and singing of psalms, very much like our liturgy today, but it would start off with a responsive readings. And the person who is called the she, i got to look to make sure I say it right, in case there's a person who's going to look it up. Shiliak Tishbur, right? Just keep that in your head. If it can't stay in my head and I know Hebrew, I don't think it's going to stay in your head, but it's recorded. So the, uh, so the Shiliak Tishbur, so the person who was in charge of the synagogue would pick someone. Now, they didn't have like uh, pastors like we have pastors that would just pick someone. So in our congregation, we'd look around like the elders of the church and we'd say, hey, will you talk today on our reading? So the Mormon church actually does something similar. So that's how they would do it. And they would do the responsive reading. That would be the Shiliak who would do that. Then he would sit down and then a number of other people would come up and do readings from the law or the Torah. So up to seven people would read from the first five books of the Bible. Then they would sit down and then the featured guest or elder of the church. So if someone famous was in town, you would ask him to speak and that's exactly what would happen. So they asked in this particular instance, we don't know exactly, they said, Jesus, will you come and talk? And they read from the prophets. That was their job. So it was a real particular thing. So they would have a 
uh, thing, and it's a thing called the ark over here. So they would go, it was all in the same spaces. They would go pull the scroll out of the ark, and often it was in cloth because they didn't want to touch it, and it had rolls on the end. So these are big, thick things. And you can imagine they're made from papyrus or animal skins, really expensive, and they had a hand write. You can imagine the cost, and no one wanted to mess these up, so they had a hand write all of them. There's no printing press. And the scroll does not go like this. That's only in, like, Robin Hood, the movie, where they announce things like that. They always go like this, so they have these big rolls. They would set it down, and they wouldn't touch it. I've told you that before. They weren't allowed to even touch it. They had a pointer, and they have, like, very elaborate pointers. They open it up for Jesus, and this is the big day, right? Now, here's the guy who's going to preach at his hometown, and I can still picture this, like my own Bible in front of my own church uh, growing up. And they would read and then sit down. So here's what Jesus reads to sit down to teach, but this is what he read. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim for the prisoners and proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So there he is, and it says his reputation is growing, and he gets ready to read. That's right here. And the eyes of everyone is on him. Let me go back. He brought up on the Sabbath day the custom, and he stood up to read from the scroll. So he reads from the scroll right there, what we just read. And then it says, gives back the scroll, and the eyes of everyone are on him. And you can imagine. So if he learned from the Professor James Tiefel um, school of thought, when you start to preach, you're supposed to wait just long enough that people think you forget your spot. So we'll just test that out. So I'd just say, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I actually did this my first sermon, so people are getting nervous, right? And then they're starting to look away. And then right then, you're supposed to have everyone's attention. I don't know if Jesus did that, but it says the eyes of everyone are on him as he sits down to teach. And uh, what's really interesting as he's getting ready to go is the Greek says they're intensely looking at him continuously. So like when you tried to get, yeah, isn't it confusing? But it's meant to say like everybody, you know, there's no one seeing if the Krispy Kreme showed up. There's no one taking their kids out. Like all eyes are up front. Like when you go and try and get Adele tickets, you're intensely looking at the screen and then you're re-clicking continuously. So this is what's happening when you're trying to, did anyone get Adele tickets? You did, you did. wow. Through StubHub or you actually used, you what? Oh, pre-sale tickets, if you know people. Now I know somebody. <laughs> so, no, right, right. So you can imagine, traditional way, I heard people try, they could not get him. And that's the same way. So the eyes are all on him. And Jesus gets ready for a sermon. And you, you can imagine the people sitting back and saying, okay, he read with authority. That was good. He's doing a nice job. He's not fumbling. And he's reading the, the Hebrew correctly because that's a big deal. And he sits down for his sermon. And this is how it starts. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I'll just read that one more time. So just to set it up, this is from Isaiah 61. So this is probably a section that the people knew that talked about a Messiah to come. Like that's their life. Like they look forward to this Messiah to come. They, they look forward to the day when like oppression is gone. They look forward to a day when the Messiah, and it describes it in the Bible, the Messiah like a sword comes from his mouth and, he's, and he smashes mountains. The Messiah is going to come one day and bring relief. And now you have the oppression of the Roman people coming on you, and you're just dreaming of the day the Messiah would come. The only example I could think of is if you've had someone that you love that's a believer who has died, you're looking forward. When, when I read from, like, Revelation and talk about the day when you're going to be reunited and there's no more tears, you're like, that's going to be the day, right? 
So you've got a congregation of people saying, like, I cannot wait until this Messiah shows up. And Jesus sits in front of them and says, it's happening right now. Like, right now. Like, so just put it in that same context we said, if you're looking forward to the end of the world so that you can meet with your loved one and you read all these, you know, the one day it's going to come like the thief of the night and then someone stands up in front of you and says, that's now. Like, just imagine that. So, like, the people you can imagine are looking around and like, did he just say what I thought he said? Like, because there's some implications that come with that. The implication on a major scale is Jesus before this group of people, his hometown, is saying, I am the one. Like, I'm the one that Isaiah is talking about. For 700 years, people have been reading this on synagogue Saturdays, and I'm the guy who's going to do that. That's implication one. What does it mean for you and me? Realignment. When, whenever you come across something that's so shocking that there's some realignment that has to happen in your brain, right? For them, they always look forward to the day where this is going to happen, and then suddenly he says, it's here, this causes realignment. If I said the end of the world is this afternoon, remember, I'm never going to predict the end of the world. It'll happen after I die. No one will be mad in heaven if I'm wrong, so it doesn't matter. So, the, right, I'm never going to do that, but imagine if I said it's happening today. Like, would that cause some realignment in your life? Like at 2 o'clock, the end of the world's going to come? Or would you still go to, like, King Supers to buy bean dip? Right? <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I don't picture myself doing that. Right? I can, like, call everybody. I can know the cell phones would all be jammed and you know, hanging out with your family because it would realign what you do. And that's really what has happened to this group of people. Jesus stands before them and says it's time to realign because here's the reality. So what does it mean to you if the true Messiah comes and speaks to these people? What does it mean when Jesus speaks these things to you? So just read that for yourself. I'm guessing you landed on uh, one. Of, there's, there's two things when we realign. Uh, one is a realignment of who we actually are. We've talked about this a hundred times. You think you're good at something until you meet someone who's really good at it. Like you think you're good at Rubik's Cube, just Google how fast they can do Rubik's Cubes. You think you're good at anything, and then it just realigns and reassesses who you are. You think you're good at a sport, and then you go witness someone who's really good at it, or you think you're good at snowboarding. You see Sean White, who's not invited to the X Games, shoot 20 feet out of the half, uh, half pipe, and you go try the half pipe, and it's scary just to get like your ski tips near the top, right? Because it's so scary. It's like 20 feet high, and he's going 40 feet in the air. It's just ridiculous. So this realigns. What does this do to realign who you are? Jesus calls us something. Do you know that? Like if this is true, if Jesus is talking to you, as the Messiah, this is what he's saying to you, I have come to talk to the poor, that's us, the captive, the blind. The reality is we have to, we have to just take a step back and realign to say, like, wait a second, so if this is really true, and it's happening right now, like those people would have had it said, Jesus is saying, this is being fulfilled. The one who's coming is proclaiming right now, and Jesus is proclaiming to the people, that means they have to be the one who are being proclaimed too which means we're the ones being proclaimed too, which means the reality is we look at ourselves and we have to say, in what degree am I poor? Like, take a look at your faith, right? Do you ever, just take a real hard look at it. And on your days, there's days of proud faith, but there's a whole lot of days, if you're anything like I am, that you say, you know, my faith's not that great. 
And I think about that captiveness, and I think that's maybe the most vivid story. I had the, the bands, but how often is your life like that? If it's straight out is following the will of God, and you say, this is my desire, how often do you feel that pull? How often do you feel that pull that just kind of drags you down? Right? And when you start talking about addiction, or you're talking about um, uh, getting obsessed about money, or you talk about pornography, or you talk maybe it's alcohol that's just like kind of pulling you down, and you're like, okay, now I'm free from this, but it just doesn't quite do it, right? It just keeps pulling you down. And it wouldn't be great if just once we became a believer, we just follow God's will like no problem. But it just doesn't work like that. There's a pull, and there's a pull, and there's a pull, and there's a pull. And some of those bands that got a little too intense for the kids' lesson, I have different sizes, but for some of us, for different sins, there's a bigger pull, Right? There's sins. Gambling is not a big deal to me. I mean, it just isn't. For some of you, it could be a big struggle. So if someone said, don't gamble for the rest of your life, big deal for me. But there's a whole lot of other things that we're not going to talk about today that just pull and pull and pull. So the reality is, if Jesus is really talking to you as a Savior, you have to say, where do I stand before God? I am poor in my faith, and I've been dragged down by sin. It's like a shackle. It's pulling you down, and it's squeezing you, and it's bringing you down, and then there's just blindness. How many sins have you been tricked by that you say, okay, this is really going to bring me happiness. This is going to bring me hope. This is going to bring me joy, and it's just a lie. Like blinded by the allure of stuff we talked about, or time, or who knows what. If God is really talking to you, you have to really look at yourself and say, where do I stand with a holy God? We're the poor, you and me. We're the ones being dragged down with like sin on our necks. And we're the ones who are blind to what this world has pulled. And it looks so alluring and it seems so great. And it's just pulling us farther and farther for what God has. You know, we have glimmers where we try and we try and we try and it pulls us back down. But if he's really talking to us, he's really talking to us. Right? And the Messiah who came to this planet, I mean, a real God, says, sure, you're the poor and the captured and the blind, but the real Messiah stands and he looks at you and he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. I've come to bring freedom. I've come to, to set these chains loose. I've come to let you, to take your debt of sin and to get rid of it. I have come to give you openness and freedom and a, ability to follow my will. I've come to cut all these cords. So, we, so there's real good news that not someday he's going to come, not someday he's going to be here, someday he's going to bring freedom, but that day has actually come right now. When I was in college, uh, Dostoevsky, does anyone, we fancied ourselves being literary types. So we would read um, Dostoevsky or uh, Tolstoy. Okay, I didn't really read Tolstoy, uh, but that's like this long. So and we, David Foster Wallace and stuff, so we're reading all these books, but he had one book in particular, um, Crime and Punishment, but the story of, uh, and it's a story, and I, I wasn't able to verify all the details, but it's December 22nd, and he was a revolutionary in Russia, so he's fighting against the revolution. And um, he had a printing press, and he was going to print these revolutionary materials, so the, the sentence to that was death. So they, they line him up, and this is how the story goes. They line him up, and they have the coffins all laid out. Now just imagine you're uh, Dostoevsky. The, the coffins are all laid out. You and your comrades are going. They have the firing squad all lined up, and the day comes of your death, and ready to die, but there's a new czar, who's Nicholas I, and Nicholas I decided, hey, I'm going to give them 
It's not really a full pardon. It's like a half pardon because he said, okay, you will not die. You'll just have hard labor for the rest of your life. But the way that he did it was with dramatic fashion. He sent in the messenger right at the last moment. And this is Dostoevsky thinking back of what would happen those last moments. He said, what happens if I didn't have to die? What if I didn't have to die? And he continues, I would turn every minute into an age. Nothing would be wasted. Every minute would be accounted for. To fully appreciate where we stand with a true Messiah who comes and talks to you and me, you have to recognize where you stand. We really are poor. We really are captured and captivated by sin. We really are prisoners of what the devil brings to us. But to appreciate, you have to know all that stuff that's been released. And you think in that moment, like as you're being drawn down, imagine that, like you're in water. Not that I have these creepy drowning dreams, but uh, in every creepy drowning dream, what would happen, right? You'd be just under the surface, and you could still see the light like they show in movies, and you'd be pulled down, and something's pulling on your leg, and you're just thinking like, okay, is this it? I wanted to buy bean dip after church, right? No, you're being pulled down. You're being pulled down, and then to really appreciate what it'd be like, you're like, I'm about to die, and to know that, that Christ is the one who's come and given you freedom and breath and forgiveness and life. What would you do if you didn't have to die? I'd make every moment last an eternity. And I'd make the advantage of every moment to live that way for Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we look at your word. And it's nice just to look at it, give it a cursory glance. We don't want to admit what we have to admit. But the reality is we stand before you sinful. We stand before you poor in spirit. We stand before you captivated by our own sinfulness. Um, tricked by the allure of the world, and sometimes we don't even want to change. So we ask for two things. Help us recognize where we stand before you and give us a heart that desires change and give us a heart that appreciates fully what you did for us, which is given us freedom, given us uh, release, and given us the ability through you to walk in your ways. We ask this in your name. Amen.